HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's Communications Director. Today, we're asking, does COVID-19 make a stronger argument for universal school lunch? A couple of quick notes. In this episode, when we talk about universal school lunch, we're referring to free lunch for all students attending K-12 schools in the U.S., We'll hear from Dr. Katie Wilson, one of the most well-known advocates of the need for universal school lunches. This episode is part of a three-episode mini-series created in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. To learn more about the Foundation's food initiative and global commitments, visit rockefellerfoundation.org commitment food. So let's go back a bit. I began reporting this piece after reading a headline from the Food and Environment Reporting Network. It said, school meal programs have lost more than $483 million so far during the pandemic. Even though I knew about the challenges that nutrition programs were having with USDA waivers, this number was shocking. To learn more, I called Karina Pizer, who wrote the piece. My name is Karina Pizer. I am a contributing reporter at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, where I cover food security, food access, uh, and the social safety net, so often childhood nutrition, programs to help new mothers, etc. School nutrition programs are one of the most important anti-hunger tools for low-income children. So just to give a sense, more than 30 million children in the U.S. rely on school meals for breakfast and lunch to round out their daily calorie needs, and 22 million qualify for free or reduced-price meals. As we talked about in Episode 10 of The Big Food Question... During the COVID-19 pandemic, the USDA authorized and later extended a series of waivers. These waivers created flexibilities that made it easier for families to pick up free lunches and breakfast, regardless of their child's age or income bracket. But this meant a lot of adjustments for school lunch programs, and only some of the new costs they took on would be covered by these waivers. 
So schools get reimbursed by the federal government, by the, the USDA, for the meals that they serve. This is how the system usually works. But when the pandemic forced schools to close, it became harder to get lunches to students learning remotely. If you're a school lunch program and you get reimbursed for every meal served and you prepare 100 meals and you only serve 50, well, you'll get reimbursed for the 50 meals. But then all of the other costs um, of the kitchen staff, etc., you've already footed and you're not making up that remaining revenue from, you know, the, the families that aren't showing up. And then there's also all of the ways that school lunch programs have had to adapt. So they've had to, you know, buy all of the protective gear, um, change the types of meals they serve. These are all a lot of costs that um, add up. This means school nutrition programs across the country are losing money. The total dollar amount of losses was more than four, um, $483 million. And What's striking also is kind of the the level of uncertainty that school nutrition directors have going into this school year. And so a lot of what the survey found was that school nutrition directors are kind of concerned about the viability of this program moving forward. Um, So 93% of respondents in the survey cited financial loss as their top concern heading into fall and winter. Two-thirds of those surveyed anticipate further financial losses into this school year. And then some of the the advocates I talked to, so for example, uh, the Urban School Food Alliance, which represents all urban, so the the largest school districts in the country, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, said that a lot of the districts she represents, school nutrition directors have tried to invest in creating new programs, whether it's about increasing kitchen capacity to make more home-cooked food so that it's healthier for students. They've had to abandon a lot of these really kind of good and important programs just because of the new financial constraints. When we come back after the break, we'll hear from Dr. Katie Wilson, the director of the Urban School Food Alliance that Karina just mentioned. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing. Less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question, where we're asking, 
How does the pandemic make the argument for free universal school lunch? I think right now we are in crisis, and I'm not afraid to say that. This has become very challenging. School nutrition programs are in crisis. This is Dr. Katie Wilson. I'm the executive director for the Urban School Food Alliance, and I have been in school nutrition my entire career of over 35 years. I was a school nutrition director in a number of districts in the state of Wisconsin, and then I went on to be the executive director for the Institute of Child Nutrition, which is USDA's training arm for all school nutrition employees and child care employees nationwide. And so I ran that institute for five years, was also a, an associate professor at the University of Mississippi, because that's where the institute is housed. And from there, I then became the deputy undersecretary for food, nutrition and consumer services in the Obama administration. Dr. Wilson argues that universal school lunch would have solved many of the problems that school nutrition programs face during COVID-19. Remember in school meals right now, we put the burden of family income on the shoulders of children. Everything else when they walk through that school door is part of your school day. When it comes to a school meal or nutrition, we ask the child, what's your income level? And then we identify you by your your family income. So when schools close, that became really uh, problematic. So very quickly, USDA turned around and said, okay, let's do summer meals. For us, that's much easier. The meal pattern isn't quite as strict. And summer meals have two categories. There are open and closed sites. Open site means more than 50% of the population qualifies for free or reduced lunch. And those programs are able to serve all children under 18, regardless of income or enrollment status. Closed sites do not have more than 50% population qualifying for free or reduced lunch, so they have to claim reimbursement for children they serve for free. They can't just serve food to anyone that comes to them. So those small programs had to do meal applications. They had to identify kids by income once again. So what happened is when we got the opportunity from USDA to switch to summer, we appreciated it, but we had to fight really, really hard to change and get a waiver for that income eligibility. It was almost impossible to identify what area kids were from, what their income levels were, because families were losing jobs at an alarming rate. And so everything was in flux. Nobody knew what was happening. Had we had a universal free meals program to begin with, we could have just started serving kids immediately. So while it's clear that we must solve the immediate crisis facing school lunch programs, the problem is bigger than the pressures placed upon it by the pandemic. Here's Karina Pizer again. I think it's really clear that the economic fallout from the pandemic is going to outlast the public health implications of it. And so I think that a lot of people that I've talked to who work in in childhood nutrition and school nutrition and generally um, in the anti-hunger system are are concerned that the government will see the end of the pandemic as the end of the health implications rather than the end of the economic implications. And so they want this expanded safety net to endure. I asked Dr. Wilson if COVID-19 made the argument for universal school lunch easier or harder. On one hand, programs are facing debt like never before. But on the other, we can now see how inefficient the current system is. I think it has shown us this is why we need this. Had we had universal free meals to start with, we could have immediately started feeding kids curbside and not worried about what, who, where, when, you know, what school they belong to. We just would have started. We, a lot of kids that, that took the, cup, the week or so to get this up and running, 
you know, kids fell through the cracks. Hunger doesn't wait a week for us to get set up. They don't wait two weeks for waivers to show up. Hunger sets in the next 24 hours. So let's lay out the argument for universal school lunch. First of all, we put the burden of family income on the shoulders of children. That's how lunch shaming happens. If your family doesn't fill out the right forms, if your family forgets to put lunch money in your account, or they just don't have the lunch money to put in your account, and you come up to the line and you don't have money and somebody shames, you might take their, your lunch away from you. And the other piece is there is such a stigma in school meals. That's why we still see people making fun of it. We still see people calling them lunch ladies, which is a, a ter- terminology that I just can't stand. And it's easy to make fun of school meals. It's easy not to talk about the quality of the meal. And it's all because we have this stigma that it's for free. It's for the poor kids. And it's been the stigma forever. If it becomes part of the school day, like giving out iPads, every child that walks in the door gets an iPad. It's not based on your family income. Then it becomes part of the school day. It becomes valued. And children no longer have to feel this stigma. And studies show that kids do so much better in the morning if they eat something and they eat good nutrition. So yes, I think it would have a huge impact on, and we would get, we would put more value on the school meal time and stop cutting into it, stop shorting, shortening it. And there would be more value there on what that does for the community in a whole, as a whole. After an incredibly tumultuous year, I think it's safe to say that schools and families are craving stability and certainty universal school lunch could create a much more resilient system and reallocate resources from burdensome administrative work to preparing healthier meals for kids. People always say to me, Katie, what's that going to cost? Dr. Wilson, isn't that too expensive? I won't talk about money. Whatever they want to do, this country finds money to pay for it. We're talking about children, children's health outcomes 18 years later. We're talking about children that need good food. And it's connected to our agricultural marketplace because we have to buy American in the child nutrition program. So it all fits together. And so let us as a country decide that children are worth this. We value them and we need to find the funding to make this happen. In January, we will have a new president and we don't yet know which party will be in control of the Senate. What could this mean for the future of school lunch? Well, I will tell you that school meals has always been very bipartisan. We've always had very good support for school meals, particularly when it comes to child nutrition reauthorization. We've had good conversations on both sides of the aisle. People care about kids. And I'm hoping that once this is all said and done, we did not get a 2015 child nutrition reauthorization, which put child nutrition programs in a very precarious position. The Child Nutrition Reauthorization is the process when Congress scrutinizes and updates laws that govern all child nutrition programs. It's supposed to happen every five years, but the process hasn't been completed since 2010, when Congress passed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. I think we need one, and I'm really hoping that we can come back to the table now, and this will be one of the issues that our legislative um, bodies can both agree on and, and maybe this is one that can begin to build consensus and literally rebuild. I think even the outcome of the election, regardless of how it all comes out, I think the American people have really spoken to all of those people that we've put in Washington, D.C., and they have said, look, folks, start working together. It's time. 
to start working together again. And we could do that through child nutrition reauthorization. Thanks for listening to The Big Food Question. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks this episode to Karina Pizer and Dr. Katie Wilson. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and me, Kat Johnson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.